Listen, there's a great work to be done. As soon as you win this court battle, you must deliver this message. Take advantage of this opportunity and declare a powerful message to this world. He expects more of us. He believes we can do more. Who's going to stop Christ? Who's going to stop Christ from getting this work done? This is Behind the Work. Welcome to Behind the Work. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're broadcasting to you live today from the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus here in Edmond, Oklahoma. It is a very cold, icy day. I actually walked over here and my speaking notes feel like the weathered pages of a book written in the 1500s. Uh, quite a lot of mist out there and just cold wind. So I'm definitely noticing my, <laughs> my notes are a bit more ruffled than usual. It was definitely a fun weekend here in Edmond with a fun show on Saturday night and then a lot of us getting together to watch the Super Bowl yesterday. And now we're just getting back into the regular weekly routine. How do you deal with rebels, with scoffers, with people who really want to argue with you? Sadly, Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, had to deal with this quite a lot. He died in 1986, but he was the predecessor of this work today, of Mr. Gerald Flurry and the Philadelphia Church of God. He had a lot of experience dealing with rebels. I heard a story the other day about one of my relatives who is a communist. I hate to have to admit that. I have a communist relative, and he works in a warehouse, and he's pretty vocal about his beliefs, and let's just say there was an anti-communist in that same warehouse who threatened to hurt him if he kept on talking about politics at the, at the workplace. Is that how to deal with rebels, <laughs> with argumentative people? Are you supposed to threaten their lives? That's That uh, was funny to hear, and thankfully nothing came of that, but that obviously is not the right way to handle such a situation. Mr. Armstrong, back in 1933, uh, he was talking here in his autobiography, which is available to you for free at thetrumpet.com, about visiting some brethren who had attended church services regularly, but then he says they had not come into the church because of a few doctrinal differences. So they attended services but didn't actually become members. He says these doctrinal differences had not been explained. I felt that I could explain them. As a result of nearly a week's work with these people in their homes, a number of them did accept the truth. We thereupon accepted them into fellowship as members of the church. And the reason I bring this up in the context of rebels, these people were not rebels at all. They had just some honest questions that they wanted answered. They weren't trying to defy God in any way. They just didn't understand. And all they did was talk to Mr. Armstrong about it, and he took the time to explain it. Now, in almost every single case I've ever heard, of people leaving God's church over a doctrinal difference, 
those people never talked to anyone about it. They never asked questions uh, to the ministry. They never sought an explanation. If they had, it would have probably turned out very differently. But you see, rebels are people who don't want to know the right answer. They want to justify their rebellion. They don't want to have their rebellion overturned. They don't want to have their wrong beliefs overturned. So there is a a pretty clear, distinct difference there. There's going to be times where we might not understand a certain point, maybe come across something in Bible study that we don't quite grasp right away, and that doesn't make us rebellious. But if we start taking that misunderstanding and allowing doubt and resentment to creep in, that that can be a problem. So this was something Mr. Armstrong dealt with way back in 1933, and he had way more (laughs) severe problems to deal with from actual rebels. Now, thankfully, these people, like I just mentioned, were not rebels at all, Uh, but it can obviously get to that point if we don't get our questions answered, if we don't communicate those misunderstandings. Mr. Armstrong talks here, this again, is, this is chapter 29 of the autobiography, titled, The Real Beginning of Present Work. He says here, this was the small, actually infinitesimal start of what was destined to grow to be a major worldwide gospel work reaching multiple millions of people every week. But if small, it started with a burst of energy and inspiration. First, it started with intensive and earnest private prayer. He starts to talk about the prayer rock. The PCG today possesses that prayer rock. It's on display right here on campus in Edmond at the Hall of Administration. But he would go there and he would pray early in the morning, other times, on this farm in Oregon. And he said, I'm sure that I drank in much energy, spiritual strength, and inspiration at that prayer rock. Now this relates to how to deal with rebels because this is how Mr. Armstrong dealt with them. He had to get a lot of inspiration from God to know how to give an answer, to know when to give an answer, to know when not to. There are obviously going to be a lot of points in our lives where we come into contact with people who don't agree with what God says, with what the Bible says, and they might want to challenge us on that, or they might just have an honest question. So it does take discernment, it does take help to know how to handle those different situations as they come up. Here in 1933, Mr. Armstrong uh, started having these meetings again, another set of meetings, uh, this time in this little schoolhouse in Oregon, just 35 seats available to the public. The first night Mr. Armstrong spoke, 27 people attended, and then the second night attendance dropped to 19. However, that second night, something happened that really spread the word about these meetings, sparked a lot more interest in people attending upcoming meetings. And this was because Mr. Armstrong had to deal with a rebel who attended the event. 
this person was actually so bold as to interrupt Mr. Armstrong's sermon. Now, that never happens <laughs> in the PCG. If, if we're actually at services, that never happens. And anytime I've ever been at a personal appearance campaign, no one has ever decided to just interrupt the speaker partway through. So I can't even really imagine what this would have been like. This, this man, Mr. Belshaw, yells out in the middle of Mr. Armstrong's message, May I ask you a question? So, here we go. Here comes the confrontation with a rebel. Mr. Armstrong responded that he could ask the question, and Mr. Belshaw said, Have you been saved yet? Mr. Armstrong writes here, Instantly I knew what his trap was. He expected me to say that I had been, of course. Then he would have asked me if I did not know what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 13. So I immediately quoted this scripture to him. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 13, that he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And in the very next verse, Jesus also said that his gospel of the kingdom, which is the rule of God, the keeping of his commandments, shall be preached in all the world as a witness. That is what I am doing here tonight. Why do you not obey the commandments? As Jesus said, Mr. Belshaw, Mr. Armstrong writes here, I knew that Mr. Belshaw argued against the Ten Commandments. Here's Mr. Belshaw's response. I would obey the commandments if I could see any love in them. Mr. Armstrong replied, then you must be spiritually blind. The Ten Commandments are merely the ten points of the great law of love. The first four tell you how to love God. The last six tell you how to love your neighbor. The Bible says love is the fulfilling of the law. The commandments came from God, and God is love. He gave the commandments. Do you think God ever did anything that was not done in love? <laughs> Just an incredible response. Now, this was Mr. Armstrong's first interaction with Mr. Belshaw, and he didn't necessarily know that it would be a confrontation. So this time, he just answered the question. He didn't know if Mr. Belshaw would rebel against the answer. But Mr. Belshaw, sure enough, eventually proved that he was a rebel and that he was not going to listen to anything Mr. Armstrong told him. And that's why the next time there was a confrontation, Mr. Armstrong ended up handling it quite differently. So notice here, remember, the first night of meetings, 27 people, the second night, 19 Tuesday night, 36. So 35 was the capacity. One had to stand throughout the service. Thursday night, 35 came. Every seat filled. There was one night where the attendance went up to 64. Keep in mind, this was in a rural part of Oregon. Not many people around. So it's quite impressive that so many people showed up. Attendance for the six weeks of meetings averaged 36 people per night. Again, one more than the seating capacity. It's funny, though. This whole chapter 29 is about <laughs> Mr. Armstrong's many experiences with rebels. Again, not people who have an honest, genuine question and just want to know the answer, but people who are trying to draw you into a trap or people who are trying to waste a lot of your time 
arguing, and they don't even want to listen to what you have to say anyway. Now, there, there's another moment here toward the end of the six weeks, the final Sunday night of these meetings in this little schoolhouse where Mr. Armstrong invited a visiting minister to pray before the meeting. He wrote here, my sermon topic had been announced. This minister knew I was going to speak on the subject of God's Sabbath. In his prayer, this young preacher did his best to belittle me, discredit everything he thought I could say in my sermon, and give the impression I was not preaching the gospel. So here is another situation where a rebel is trying to publicly humiliate Mr. Armstrong. And in this case, it wasn't just a matter of him having to decide whether to answer the rebel's question or not, but he was basically having his entire message preempted by this attacking prayer. So everyone heard the attack, so everyone also had to hear the answer to that attack. And Mr. Armstrong gave the answer in his message right away. He actually said that this belittling prayer was the best possible introduction for his message. That's amazing that Mr. That Mr. Armstrong could be inspired to give these types of answers, basically to just chase away the doubters right away. Pretty incredible. God definitely had to inspire that. It's an example of using the Bible as a two-edged sword, like Hebrews 4 verse 12 talks about. But here's how Mr. Armstrong responded at the beginning of his message after this prayer. I wonder if people realize that sin is the transgression of God's law. And that Jesus Christ was crucified because you people have been transgressing his holy Sabbath. Don't you profane what is holy to God anymore. And now I propose to preach to you Christ crucified tonight and why he was crucified. So that's all that this visiting minister was talking about in the prayer. May this speaker only talk about Christ being crucified. And so Mr. Armstrong got back to the very core of it, that, that Christ had to die for sins, our sins that are the breaking of God's law, which does include a commandment about keeping the Sabbath day. My young preacher guest in white hot anger stomped out of the schoolhouse to the accompaniment of the laughter of the audience all of whom apparently delighted to see the tables turned on one who took a hostile advantage of a friendly invitation to lead in prayer. Again, he had merely provided me with the most effective possible introduction for my sermon. <laughs> you see, he had to answer publicly to that because the attack was public. It was this man trying to use his own reasoning to undermine Mr. Armstrong's message. But there are other times where we should avoid giving an answer at all. Now, this is the next time that Mr. Belshaw confronted Mr. Armstrong. In the, in the autobiography, 
the subtitle is Belshaw's Last Stand. So this man did not take it very well when he was silenced <laughs> the first time that he tried to object. Mr. Armstrong left him speechless. But this time, he thinks he has the upper hand. So, this, so Mr. Belshaw decided to ask Mr. Armstrong, after his message was over this time, how do you prove that we're supposed to keep the Sabbath today? Where did Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually teach the Gentiles to become Sabbath keepers? So Mr. Armstrong confidently responded, I certainly can show you where Paul said this. And then listen to this. But before I do, I will now ask you a question. If I do show you where the Apostle Paul commanded the Gentile converts to keep the Sabbath, then that is irrefutable proof that you are commanded to keep it holy or, or commanded to keep it today. Now, before I show you this command, I demand to know this. If I show where Paul commanded the Gentiles to keep the Sabbath, will you now give up your rebellion and surrender to keep it also? <laughs> so by this time, Mr. Armstrong knew that Mr. Belshaw was a rebel and that he had no intention of applying any truth that he heard. So this brings to mind a verse here, Matthew 7, verse 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast you your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. So it's almost comparing rebels to dogs and pigs. That's what it's talking about in Matthew 7, verse 6. It's saying don't give the truth to people who will not accept it. It's dangerous knowledge. And if they receive the truth, they're expected to take action. You might as well not tell them the truth because then it will make them accountable. So in this case, Mr. Armstrong demanded that Mr. Belshaw admit he's wrong and change the way that he lived. And Mr. Belshaw refused and stormed out. In front of everybody. You see, sometimes you have to give an answer. Other times, you really shouldn't. There are some people who just want to debate endlessly. It's common, it's common today for people to think that, uh, you know, robust debate is the foundation of a healthy nation. I've heard Mr. Joel Hilliker on the Trumpet Hour program talk many times about how it's not really a good thing to argue back and forth, to have disagreements, to voice your disagreements. What does debate in this country actually produce? What good fruits come from all of the political discourse in America? Are people ever really finding common ground or are we on the verge of civil war? Are people just wasting a lot of time trying to change each other's minds when no one's mind is ever going to change? It is a waste of time to try to tell God's truth to people who simply refuse to hear it or refuse to really think it over. They might 
be quiet just long enough for you to quickly say something before they give you their long rebuttal. Chapter 30 of the autobiography is titled The World Tomorrow Broadcast Begins. So these meetings went from July to August of 1933. And toward the end of this, right at the end of this pretty much, Mr. Armstrong got an opportunity to go on the radio for the first time ever. And he was dealing with plenty of rebels within God's own church, within God's own ministry, even, or within the ministry. You couldn't really say they were God's ministers, but they were attacking him. They disagreed with the way that he handled certain situations, as chapter 30 will describe to you. And so they arranged that Mr. Armstrong would not be employed by the Oregon Conference of the Church of God anymore. And Mr. Armstrong actually wrote the letter to renounce his $3 per week salary. So he did not want to be tied to people who were trying to force him to practice unbiblical uh, teachings or teach unbiblical teachings, uh, practice certain methods that were unbiblical. So he got rid of his salary so that he wouldn't be beholden to anyone. No one could try to force him to teach anything in particular. He would just try to teach what God said. It's almost like this was the one thing uh, preventing Mr. Armstrong from going through much bigger open doors to do God's work. Being tied to this salary, being tied to people trying to influence the way he taught. It's like, it's like if you're rock climbing and at the top you just unclip and then try to just maybe climb a little higher or climb back down by yourself without, without that reassurance of being caught should you fall off the wall. It can be quite unsettling to give up a salary, to give up your only way of providing for your family. And yet that's exactly what Mr. Armstrong did. That would be a real test of faith. But he got tired of dealing with these ministers who were always betraying him, always trying to turn the brethren against him. There was this point where they had a meeting. Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Ray, Mr. Oberg, some other members of the conference. And both Mr. Ray and Mr. Oberg spoke for about two hours each, just attacking Mr. Armstrong. Just one long tirade after another. And all Mr. Armstrong did was read out his previously typed up response in 15 minutes, quickly defended himself, and then left. And as soon as he left and as soon as the people who supported him went outside to tell him that they still supported him, Mr. Ray and Mr. Oberg got the rest of the people still in the building to vote against Mr. Armstrong. They were going to try to force Mr. Armstrong to conduct baptisms a different way than what the Bible said. And that's why Mr. Armstrong gave up the salary. So he did have to deal with a lot of rebels, both in the, in the church, in the ministry, 
and outside of the church. Now, of course, it was good for him to defend himself in that situation after being attacked for about four hours, at least refute the attacks, at least preserve your reputation a little bit. But he did not take another two hours to try to argue back and forth with them some more. Here at the end of chapter 30, Mr. Armstrong writes, But from that moment when we began to rely solely on God for financial support, not only, but also for guidance, direction, and results, the work began a phenomenal yearly increase of nearly 30% for the next 35 years. It doubled in size, scope, and power. On the average of every two and two-thirds years, it multiplied eight times every eight years, 64 times in 16 years. Today, it is an immensely larger and greater work than then. And then he says he was converted, which had deflated his ego, replacing self-assurance with the confidence that is faith in God. And then this crisis in the church and breaking away from that salary safety net was a turning point where he says, my wife and I actually in practice began relying solely on God, no longer on either self or men. So until he was converted and until he gave up that salary, God could not open the big doors. That's what Mr. Armstrong said. He had to be humbled and corrected by God, and then he had to let God provide for him. Mr. Armstrong wrote, the difference between this work of God and others is just that. This is the work of God and not of men. It started and continued to rely on God, not on man. So you see, Mr. Armstrong never caved into the rebels. He always obeyed God. He answered the rebels at times, and other times he didn't. He defended himself from attacks, but did not engage in endless, pointless debates with them. And you could really say that's a big reason God was able to work with him. He said never was a more important decision made than that decision to cut loose entirely from relying on men and instead relying solely on God, not only for truth and for direction, but also for support. That's why we never solicit the public for contributions. Very quickly after that decision, the living Christ began opening doors. Very small ones at first, then additional small ones, then a big door, then more and more of them. How incredible. That includes radio. Like I said, the first time he went on radio, every, he went on there for 15 minutes on October 9th. And he got 14 responses right away without even asking for responses. Everyone was sending in messages to the radio station. And so finally he started doing a half-hour Sunday program on the radio but didn't have the money for it. He just trusted in God to provide that financial support. And then he says here, I knew also that we had to do our part, not lie down, do nothing, and expect God to do it without any effort from us. So he trusted in God to provide the money to go on radio, and then he just worked as hard as he could to inspire as many people 
as possible. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Behind the Work. You've been listening to Behind the Work. Email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for a new episode each Monday at 1130 a.m. Central Time.